How you going? Good to see you. Good to see you out tonight, man. How awesome are those videos? Just fantastic of baptisms that happen here. Um, hello to our online community. So glad you could join us tonight. So it's such an honor to be able to serve you in this way. And I do want to say that love is in the air. Love is in the air. Um, if you were here this morning, we had um, our youth, one of our youth pastors, um, Michael Brown, um, preach in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And um, apparently he did an amazing job. So I'd encourage you to watch it because I know that's what I'm doing when I go home is to watch Michael preach because he's so fantastic. So you're getting a double shot of love tonight too, <laughs> because that's the subject matter tonight. And I feel like God is up to something. God is up to something when you're hearing something double-barreled like this. So let's lean in tonight and see what God has for us, yeah? But before we continue in our series, um, let's pray. Let me pray for us. God, you're already here. <laughs> and I love that, that you're amongst us. And so, God, I just pray that you would open up our hearts Open up our eyes, open up our ears, help us to lean in and listen to what it is you have to say. And church, I want to ask you right now to ask God now, what is it you want to teach me tonight? Take a couple moments and pray that now for yourselves. And now I'd ask you to pray for me, that God would use me to be a blessing. God, have your way in this place tonight. Bless this time. We love you and we honor you. Have your way, have your way, have your way. And all of God's people said, amen, amen, amen. You know, um, the last couple of weeks of um, one of the, um, the last couple of weeks, one of the oldest members of our BBC family has been coming up in conversations that I've had. Frida Barrett is one of our oldest BBCers, <laughs> BBC members in this church. Frida is so beloved by all who have the honor of knowing her. And even though she has been having health issues lately, um, she loves coming to church every Sunday and hates to miss it. She has served so faithfully others in this church for years and years, as long as I've been here, and that's like forever. I've been here 20 plus years. Her smile is radiant and her manner so warm and gracious, but best of all, she loves Jesus passionately and it shows to everyone around her. And maybe because it's her precious age, um, but it's got me thinking about the writer of this letter. I can just picture him sitting at the back of the church. His hair is long and white and so is his beard. His face is weathered and wrinkled. And if you sit next to him, like Frida, every once in a while you gotta nudge him to make sure he's still alive. Um, but if you talk to him, you know that he is soaking it all in. He's somewhere between 90 and 100 years of age. And the increasing burden and weight keeps building and building in him. He knows he's the last one, like he's the last of the Mohicans, so to speak. Who remembers that movie? So good. 
He has heard the stories told and retold, and he knows every single detail of them. The, um, the friends, the faces, the laughter, every line in the conversations he knows. And bit by bit, news of them would come to him, some immediately, and some would take weeks to hear what had happened to the other 12. You see, some were set on fire. Some were cut in two. Some were beheaded. Some were beaten to death. And some were hung upside down. And for some reason, he's the last one left of the original 12 to live to a ripe old age. But that comes with a growing burden. People travel for days and miles to meet him and to hear from him. You see, his teachings aren't about him, but the one, the one whom he follows. He's the last one to write a book long after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written theirs, John puts out another gospel version into the mix, adding stories and insights that were never told. For in John's mind, it feels like it was just yesterday. He says, I was there, I experienced it, I saw it. I was there when I saw Peter step out of the boat. I was there when I saw the last of his hair go under the boat. And I was there when I saw Jesus pull him back up. I was there with the baskets of fish and bread that I helped pass out, and that miraculously kept multiplying before my eyes. I was there when he healed the sick and raised people from the dead. I was there around the campfires with him. I ate hummus with him. I slept on the side of the road with him. I was there in the upper room where we beheld his glory. And after writing this gospel account, he sits and he decides at the end of his life to write these three small letters. And it's this letter that we've been reading the last couple of weeks. In essence, John is saying, I've told you all about the story of Jesus. I've told you everything I can about who Jesus was and how he lived, how he is the son of God who came from heaven to earth and walked among us, who let himself be crucified only to rise again three days later. Now as John sits at the back of the church, he realizes that there are second and third generations of teachers and pastors and leaders and everything is starting to get a little skewed. There's this whole thing called Gnosticism happening in his day where it's all about knowledge and intellect and a secret way of kind of obtaining enlightenment and it's ripping apart the church. So we come to the part of the letter in 1 John where he's trying to set the record straight, where he's been telling us what it means to really be a follower of Jesus. And if you've been here the last couple of weeks, he's not messing around. And in John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, he says this. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's it. Thanks for coming out. Let me close in prayer. <laughs> and some of you are like, yes, yes. Shortest sermon ever. The next 13 verses are going to unpack what that verse means. And in the next couple of chapters, John is going to say it over and over and over again. So prepare your hearts for that. He's already said it like five times leading up to this. Um, this is the... Leading up to this, this is the commandment you've heard from the beginning. He says, love one another. That's it. He goes, I want to take you back there. 
And to do that, we need to understand what he's talking about and what this type of love means. You see, in the New Testament, when it talks about love, there are four different words used for love. In our language, our English language, we don't have that. You see, I really, really love my husband, and I really, really love sushi. And it's the same word both for Peter and for sushi. And yet, the love is slightly different between the two. You would hope so anyway. Yeah? In the Greek, in the New Testament, when they write about love, there's four different types. There's eros. Now, eros is where we get the word erotic from. It's romantic, sexual kind of love between a husband and a wife. Then there's storge. Storge is a family love. Parents and children, brothers and sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, nephew, nieces, people that are part of our families. And even though I don't get to see my family but every couple of years, there's a special bond there because, well, they're family. Then there's this other love called phileo, and that's brotherly love. That's what what Philadelphia means, brotherly love. It's a love that says that because of the friendship, trust, and bond that we share, I phileo you. Phileo is the strongest love humans can have by human means, and it's beautiful. But then there's God's love. And it's agape. It's a God love that is unconditional, that says, I love regardless, which the other three don't have. You see, even in families and the most common friendships and partnerships, someone can say something or do something or betray us. And we see that even the strongs of storge and phileo can be broken. And when John writes, he says, this isn't a sushi kind of love. I want to write to you about agape. This is the message you heard from the beginning that we should agape one another. It's different from the rest of the world. It's a love that is of and from God, whose very nature is love itself and the expression of his being. It's a love that is so otherworldly that it doesn't expect anything in return, but wills what's good and best for others. For this is the original message that we heard, that we should love one another. Perhaps John is remembering 60 years ago when they were in the upper room and the word of Jesus, when Jesus said in John 13, the words of Jesus when he said this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And a couple pages later in John 15, Jesus will say it again. And he says this. He says, my my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then he steps it up. He says, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And whether it's in Matthew 5, where Jesus tells us to be salt and light, a city on a hill, or a lamp in a dark house, the point is, you and I have to be different. And in Mark chapter 12, one of the teachers of the law comes to Jesus and asks Jesus if he could give him just one command to obey in all of Scripture. What's the one thing you would say that we have to obey? And Jesus says this, he says, 
The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He starts to quote Deuteronomy 6. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Sounds like two commands to me, but it's one command. They're inseparable, love for God and love for others. They're two sides of the same coin. What, mark, what marks the Christian, according to Jesus and his followers and his follower John, it's love. You see, Christians love. And it's here, and what I find so interesting is that in the early church, that was the definitive mark of the Christian. Julian the Apostate was an emperor who hated Christianity, and he tried to stamp it out. And he wrote to a colleague in frustration, and he said, it's a scandal that these Jews, that with these Jews, that there is not a beggar among them. These godless Galileans, and he called them godless because they didn't believe in their Roman gods. He said, these godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but ours as well. He said, I'm trying to kill these people. And it's a scandal because they're really nice people. <laughs> he goes, and what's so frustrating is that not only do they take care of their own poor, they take care of ours as well. You see, Romans wouldn't do that. If you were sick or poor, I'm out. If a plague hit a city, like COVID hit a city, the Romans would leave. It was the Christians who would stay and care for the sick. Why? Because it was the agape thing to do. It was there where a poor person would come and they would take care of them, Christian and Roman alike. One writer said this, they love each other before they even know each other. What was so confusing to the Roman world were that these early Christians loved others in this way. And now John's going to contrast that love, agape, and in verse 12, he's gonna tell us a story about Cain. And he says this. He says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Jesus references here Genesis chapter 4. Um, John references, sorry, Genesis 4, where we have the very first narratives of the Bible. Here we have Adam and Eve in the garden who eat fruit that they were told not to eat um, a tree from, supposed to eat from. There's a fall, there's ejection from the garden, and they have two sons, Cain and Abel. Now Cain and his Abel went to worship God and Abel brought the best he had and the first he had. And it was a symbol of, I trust you, God. I'm bringing you my firstlings, not knowing if they're gonna be secondlings because I trust you, God, to take care of me and I'm yours. Cain doesn't do that. He did his little religious observance but the book of Hebrews tells us that he had no faith. And God is like, I'm not interested in your offering if you do not trust me, Cain. And with Cain, there's no trust in God to care for him or gratitude towards God. 
for giving him all that he had. So Cain resented God. And Cain is like, I'm going to take care of me and mine because that's how I roll. You know, and when you and I start to think and live like that, where we start caring more about ourselves and stop caring for other people, where it becomes all about me and what I want, we can start to resent those who want to trust and worship God. That's what happened to Cain because he started to resent his brother. And that resentment turned to hatred, and that hatred turned into the murder of his brother Abel. And when you and I think and act like Cain, where there's a lack of trust in God and a lack of gratitude towards God, there's a hardness of heart that can happen towards people, which can turn to hate, which can become murder. John uses Cain as an example, and he takes it to the extreme. I mean, what is murder? Murder is I'm going for mine, where I will take everything from you, even your life, to get what's good for me. I mean, not everybody goes that far. But let's think about that for a minute. Because I was really convicted. You see, because in a couple of verses, John will say, if anyone hates his brother, he is a murderer. So how many of us have ever said to someone, I'm not listening to you, get out of my face, and we blow people off? Why? Because you're taking up my time. And I will insult you and hurt you just to get you out of my way. I mean, and I had to really look at myself on any given day. And I felt to ask this, how many words have we spoken today that were life-giving and encouraging to someone else? How much of our time today was used to bless someone else? You see, at the end of the day, what characterizes a Cain way of life is I'm just doing what I want. I will like you as long as it's convenient for me. Yes, murder and hate is the extreme. We may not be at that deep end of the pool, but are we playing in the shallows of that? John says, it's godless. Don't go there. There's nothing of God there. And John is calling you and I to a different form, to the way, to a different um, way from the way the world operates. You know, I was listening to a podcast um, a while back where someone said something that I haven't been able to get out of my mind. And they said this, talking about love. They said, sometimes as Christians, by saying we love everyone, keeps us from loving someone. I know. I was, I was like, what? Yeah. Had to re rewind that and play it again. They went on to say, God's not asking you to love everyone. God wants you to love somebody, and then somebody else, and then somebody else. And sometimes by saying we love everyone means that perhaps, maybe it's just that we feel sorry for people. And if we're just feeling sorry for people, but we're not meeting needs, then we're not doing what this Christian life is meant to be. And then they said, so perhaps the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I meeting needs or just feeling sorry for people? I turned that podcast off after that. I did. I was like, I don't listen to this. You know, I was just so convicted. Yeah. You know, if you grow up in church, I think sometimes we can often hear that Christianity is a personal, private relationship, which can be interpreted as it's just you and me, God. 
Yes, it's a personal relationship with God and a personal commitment that you and I make to God. But there's also a, there's also a public um, demonstration of that personal commitment. And you can't have one without the other. It's like someone asking me if I, really, if I love my husband. And I say, oh, yeah, of course I do. And they're like, well, how do you know? And I'm like, well, I said my vows on my wedding day. But do you love him? When I say, I just told you. I said my vows on November 8th. And I even have a video and pictures to prove it. And yes, today is my wedding anniversary. I told you love was in the air. Congrats, happy anniversary, JD. <laughs> and Michael, yeah, today's my wedding anniversary. I've been longer with Pete than I have been without him. And yeah, it's just amazing. We've been married a long time. And I've got the pictures to prove it. Okay, I'm all bangs. These are not professional photos. I just found a couple that friends took, so please, oh, have mercy on me. Okay, okay, ready? Okay, there's that. There we are. And then <laughs> there's that. You want to know what? You want to know what's so funny about that? Um, I send my slides into our graphics guy, and I get this email from Ben saying, "Mon, you look so great in your wedding photos, but man, that mustache of your husband's." <laughs> and what if I'm going to get back to this? And what if my husband asks me if I love him, and I say, "Watch the video. Watch the video. There's the open up the wedding album." And yes, I am going somewhere with this. If that was marriage, I said the vows once and I have the videos and pictures to prove it, so now leave me alone, because that was a personal commitment back in the day. Well, honestly, I would have a dead marriage. In fact, I probably would have no marriage. And John is like, if we understand that between a husband and wife, then how do we miss that with God? John is like, it's never been just about you and God. The message you heard from the beginning, the beginning of what God has said throughout scripture and what he wants for his people and the message that all the prophets came to give is love God and love others. It's one and the same. And Jesus will, and Jesus will say, don't even consider saying that you love me if you are not loving your brothers and sisters. And John is looking at the next generation in his church of leaders and teachers and pastors and life group leaders. And he says, go back to the beginning. Do not base your relationship with Jesus on a prayer that was said way back in the day if there's no demonstration of something that is different, something that has changed. And the vow I made with my husband Peter all those years ago was the beginning of a lifelong journey of day in, day out commitment to love each other, regardless of feelings, because let me tell you, the honeymoon is short as. <laughs> in the Christian life, you cannot separate loving God and demonstrating that love to others. It's a new command, he says, that I give you, but it's one that you've heard right from the beginning. And so what does that look like? What is he talking about? And in verse 14, John says this, he says, is that the right one? Yeah. He says, we know, and if you have your Bible apps open, I don't know, and when you go home, your Bibles, you need to circle it. We're going to hear that a lot tonight. We know. Circle it. Highlight it. Um, yeah, underline it. 
There's so much we don't know about God, but this we can know. He says, we can know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. John is like, how do we know we're different? How do we know that something is going on in our life? Because love, agape, is outward proof of an inward change. And the presence of agape, love, shows the presence of life. And that is what you see in the text. The Christian isn't just someone who's been a good little person. It says that we know we have passed from death to life because we love each other. I love that. And I hate that. <laughs> Why do we love people? And just like the song, I want to know what love is, John answers for us. And he says this. This is how we know this is how we know, highlight, underline what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Why do Christians love? Why does that mark the Christ follower for this reason? Because Jesus came and bought us with his life. He saw us when we were at our poorest, at our weakest, and our sickest. He saw us when we were hurt and wounded by a wicked world. And he saw how we took those hurts and defenses and hardened and walled up the walls of our hearts towards God and towards others. And yet, Scripture tells us that yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He came to us and for us, and he gave up everything to set us free. You see, Jesus goes to the extreme. Cain is the extreme of murder. I will take your life for my good. And Jesus is the extreme of love. I will give my life for your good. And those who trust him, and I don't know who I'm talking to, you can get forgiveness for your sin and find life and peace with God. And not just life, and no guilt and no shame, but love. And when you've been loved like that, it changes you. You're never the same again. You are a child of God, and you have been marked by Christ. The end is life. And what characterizes your life in the here and now? It's love. Because you have been loved, love. You see, love is an outward proof of inward change, and love has an example to follow. 21 times Jesus says, follow me. Everywhere it, he went, it was follow me. Every time someone came up and asked him, what should I do? And Jesus would say, follow me. It was never just accept me or believe in me and go on your merry way. It was always follow me. You want to be with me? You want to say that I am your Lord? Then do what I do. Do what I do, do what I do. John 20, 21, Jesus tells, talks to his disciples at the end of his time here on earth and after his death and resurrection. And he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. That's our role. Jesus says, what I came to do, now it's your turn to go and do it. That's what being a Christ follower is all about, which means that 
Love is an attitude. Love is not an attitude or an emotion. It's an action. Now John's going to go very practical here. He brings it down to our everyday lives. And he says in verse 17, he says this. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, can you hear the pastor heart in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. John's like, don't wait for the feeling to come. Start an action. Step out and do something. Some of your translations will say goods instead of possessions. And I love this because the word goods is literally the word bios. It means something that could give life. If you have something that could give life and you see a brother who has a need and lacking life-giving things like food and shelter and you close your heart against them, that word close is to lock up. And heart is the word splakna which means the insides, your guts inside of you. If you have things that could give life and you see someone in need and you lock up your insides against them, how does God's love abide in you? That's the opposite direction of where God is going. You see, God saw our need and he gave up everything to give us life. So when we see needs, we too give in order to give bios to give life. And if I'm honest, it's a wrestle, isn't it? This is so tough. If I really want to live the Christian life, like, does it mean that I have to go and live like Mother Teresa? Do I have to sell everything and live homeless on the side of the road with Peter and my dog Cooper? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. I think, though, what the text is saying is taking all that you and I have and not just saying, God, it's all yours, but taking the next step and saying, God, if this is all yours, what would you do with it around me? I know there are needs that I have to take care of um, with my immediate family and bills I have to pay, but all that you have given me couldn't just be just for me. And John is like, you want to know what this love is? Love is not an attitude or emotion for people. It comes out in action. And that's how you know there's been an internal change. This is how you know you're a follower of Jesus. The world would say, you love so differently to us. And the world would say, I think I'm seeing your God because you're, because you're love, because you love and live differently to me. And those who have been genuinely changed by God no longer settle for empty words of love. They know that love is a verb. They know that love moves and love does. And maybe the challenge for you and I is to just get with God and say to him, God, with all that I have, am I using it the way you really want me to? Are there areas around me where I can be involved in and invested in that goes above and beyond. You see, loving others like this draws us closer to God. And listen how the Passion Translation puts the rest of the verses in chapter 3. And I love it so much. But let's back up to 18 because it's so good. And he says this. 
He says, beloved children, our love can't be an abstract theory we only talk about, but a way of life demonstrated through our loving deeds. We know that the truth lives within us because we demonstrate love in action, which will reassure our hearts in his presence. Next slide. It stopped working. You could have, did it go down? I'm not seeing any slide. Is there a slide? Oh yeah, okay, whenever. Yeah, that's it, sorry. It just went blank up there. Sorry. Verse 20. Whenever our hearts make us feel guilty and remind us of our failures, we know that God is much greater and more merciful than our conscience. And he knows everything there is to know about us. I love that. My delightfully loved friends, when our hearts don't condemn us, we have a bold freedom to speak face to face with God. And whatever we ask of him, we receive because we keep his commands. And by our beautiful intentions, we continue to do what brings pleasure to him. And this is the command to believe in the name of Jesus, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. And the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And that is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. He says, this is how we can know that we have assurance with God. This is how we can know that we are in right relationship with him because we haven't made it all about us and we love. Loving others draws us closer to God. And I felt God ask me, so I'll just say what, what he's asking me. Are you struggling with God's love and where you stand? Then start loving others. Don't wait for a feeling. Realize from the beginning that God saved you <clears throat> out of bondage, but not just to bring you to himself, but to let the world know and see his character through your sweet life. And the prophet Michael will say, here is what he wants. He doesn't want you to be more religious. He wants you to love justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And the last remaining disciple alive writes with his withered hand, don't forget the message you heard from the beginning of what this life is all about. It's about following Jesus. Following Jesus is a life called to love and serve others the way he loved and served us. I want to end the way I started with Frida Barrett. If you've ever heard even bits of her story, you know that what changed her life so dramatically, and I know quite a bit because Frida used to come to Serious Coffee back in the day. Um, you hear how broken as her childhood was, how the love of God and the love of others radically changed her life. Check out the story of Frida. When I was born, I was obviously a third unwanted child. I, was, I went from auntie to auntie, um, whoever would have me. Um, I didn't know I had a mother. There was no mention of her. Um, and never any mention, never any letter or card. 
um, I had no information about her at all. I presumed I hadn't got one. Uh, well, up to the time that I was 11 years old, um, I, I was just a child and didn't, no, it didn't worry me. Um, didn't worry. No, no. And that was when mother came over and um, my cousins came tearing out and they said, Frida, you, your mother's there. And I, that's what I said. I didn't know I had one. Certainly no love exchanged. It, you know, there wasn't any greeting or come and give me a hug. It was just, hello, Frida. On the third day, she just um, took um, just me. And uh, there was just myself and my, my mother. And um, we went on a trade ride. And um, she left me in Birchington in a foster home. And that's when I didn't see my Auntie Lucy again. I think I just accepted it in the end. I accepted that's, um, I just accepted it. <laughs> I didn't, I missed my Auntie Lucy. I missed my brother. And um, so, you know, from that point of view, it was sad. I don't think she even said goodbye, or did she say? I don't remember her saying goodbye. <laughs> she just left. But uh, no, I had no self-image. I was nothing. Nuisance, isn't it? Nuisance, we feel, <laughs> feeling like that. I just did not like me. And I didn't think anyone else did anyway, so it really didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's when war broke out, of course. And um, we were, all had to be evacuated. And so once again, um, another upheaval. And um, it wasn't until I was 17 and um, the um, secretary, I think, came down. She was she checks the books and whatever. And she happened to see me and she said, um, oh, Friedrich, she said, if ever you want to start your nursing training, she said, come to London. She said, I'll, I'll get you into hospital. So she gave me her address and I took her at her word. <laughs> I, I gave in my notice and the matron wouldn't accept it. And so um, I ran away. <laughs> you ran away to London at 17 years old. <laughs> and anyway, I met this um, Canadian Mountie police and they were over in England. And I thought, oh, uh, Canada. I, 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 oh, of course, my imagination. I imagined all sorts of wonderful things. But of course, um, when he found out that I was um, expecting a child, um, that, that, that was a finish. He did find me a doctor though. I thought that was nice of him. Uh, I thought that was life. I never blamed him, I blamed me. After I'd had Jeannie, um, we were at the Middlesex Hospital and we were on night duty. We went up to London and there was this huge sign right across the road and it said, come to New Zealand, the land of milk and honey. Gosh, it wasn't long and we were sailing for New Zealand. I loved it. The moment we arrived, we arrived in Otahuhu, um, Middlebore Hospital. It, we went straight there. Well, I happened to nurse Graham. He didn't register. I mean, he was a patient. But he kept coming back even after he was discharged. And all the nurses were looking suspiciously and saying, you know what, you know, why is he coming back? He's been discharged. Anyway, it was for me, obviously, um, because um, I was in the sluice room one day and Graham came into the sluice room with a, with a mistletoe and he held it over my head and um, <laughs> he just said, um, would I marry him? I said, yes. 
<laughs> I think he was surprised too, although he didn't seem to be. You know, um, yes, he just thought that was great. And then he took me to meet his mother and father. They were in Pukekohe. They were beautiful. Do you know, they just accepted me. It's the first time that I'd felt real love. I lived with Graham until we celebrated our 50th anniversary. Graham had said, um, Frida, I've got something wonderful to tell you. I'm born again. And I didn't know what he was talking about. Well, I saw the change in Graham. He know that being a typical farmer or butcher, he used to swear a lot. And that's the first thing I noticed. It, it, it swearing had stopped and he loved the Bible, absolutely loved the Bible. And so I sat on the bed one night and I said, please God, would I be good enough? And it was immediate. The, the answer was absolutely immediate. And I had this wonderful vision, a brilliant, brilliant white light. And it, um, right in the middle, um, there was this bud, just like that. And that bud very slowly opened into full bloom. And I had the whole, it was the whole, it was, I, th I thought it was a rose, probably. I don't know what flower it was. Whatever it was, it was beautiful. It was perfect. And, um, and um, it, I didn't know what it meant at the time. But since I've come to believe that God um, created me and he thinks I'm beautiful, and so I've learned to accept that um, that's, um, yeah, that God accepted me. And then uh, he suddenly called out, Frida, I think you're better ring 111. And um, so I, I did, and in the meantime, got him to the chair. And he just sat in the chair, and he just kept looking up, just kept looking at me. <laughs> he was holding, holding on to my arm. <laughs> And um, then, he, he, almost as if he'd gone past, he was looking in the distance, and he said, Jesus, Jesus, peace. And he'd gone 10 minutes, but I know Jesus came for his spirit. Isn't that beautiful? I hope he comes for mine. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? There's this great line in the musical Les Mis, and it kept coming to me, and I was watching Frida's thing. And the very last line in Les Mis, in that musical, as Jean Valjean is walking toward the priest who showed him such kindness and such love. And Craig showed the clip um, a couple weeks ago in church. But the last line in the musical is, to love another person is to see the face of God. And I think that's so true. And I don't know what that looks like for you, and I was gonna have the band come out, but maybe we, we have a soft pad play by the tech guys, and maybe it is that we pray for each other, that God would stir up and ask, God, where can I serve? Where can I love practically? Where can I agape above and beyond? And maybe we pray for each other that God would open our eyes to see that. And maybe it's in this church with, talk to Brittany, I don't know if Bree's still here, but to talk to her, she heads up local initiatives. And if Eric's here, I'm not sure if he's here either, but 
talk to one of us about maybe um, things that are going on in our community that we can hook you up with. But where can we love people where they see God in us? I pray that for myself, but I pray that for you too. So God, as we open up our hearts to you, God, stir our affection, not only for you, but for those around us. And maybe it looks like an encouraging word. And, and if you're a student, maybe it's going and saying hello to someone who's sitting by themselves. Maybe it's the dignity of notice of someone in a shop and saying, hello, how are you? Help us not just to feel sorry for people, God, but to actually meet needs. I love how practical you are with that. So God, show us. Bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. After your time, um, they will put the pad up. And yes, Eric is here. You can talk to him about church care and wa walking alongside people and what that looks like. And he knows a lot of different things. But you can go to the cafe and have hot chocolate. But this is a sacred space. So use this time to pray with each other. Amen. <laughs>